This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lone Star Ranger by Zane Gray. Chapter 7 That night Duane was not troubled by ghosts haunting his waking and sleeping hours. He awoke feeling bright and eager, and grateful to Euchre for having put something worth while into his mind. During breakfast, however, he was unusually thoughtful, working over the idea of how much or how little he would confide in the outlaw. He was aware of Euchre's scrutiny. "'Well,' began the old man at last, "'how'd you make out with the kid?' "'Kid?' inquired Duane tentatively. "'Jenny, I mean. What'd you and she talk about?' "'We had a little chat. You know you wanted me to cheer her up.' Euchre sat with coffee-cup poised and narrow eyes studying Duane. "'Reckon you cheered her all right. What I'm afeard of is maybe you done the job too well.' "'How so?' Well, when I was in to Jen last night, I thought she was half crazy. She was bursting with excitement, and the look in her eyes hurt me. She wouldn't tell me a darn word you said. But she hung on to my hands and showed every way without speaking how she wanted to thank me for bringing you over. Buck, it was plain to me that you'd either gone the limit, or else you'd been kind of prodigal of cheer and hope. I'd hate to think you'd led Jenny to hope more than ever would come true. Euchre paused, and as there seemed no reply forthcoming, he went on. Buck, I seen some outlaws whose word was good. Mine is. You can trust me. I trusted you, didn't I, taking you over there and putting you wise to my trying to help that poor kid? Thus enjoined by Euchre, Duane began to tell the conversations with Jenny and Mrs. Bland, word for word. Long before he had reached an end, Euchre set down the coffee cup and began to stare, and at the conclusion of the story his face lost some of its red color, and beads of sweat stood out thickly on his brow. "'Well, if that doesn't floor me!' he ejaculated, blinking at Duane. "'Young man, I figured you was some swift, and sure to make your mark on this river, but I reckon I missed your real caliber. So that's what it means to be a man. I guess I'd forgot. Well, I'm old, and even if my heart was in the right place, I never was built for big stunts. Do you know what it'll take to do all you promised, Jen?' "'I haven't any idea.' replied Duane gravely. "'You'll have to pull the wool over Kate Bland's eyes, and even if she falls in love with you, which sure likely, that won't be easy. And she'd kill you in a minute, Buck, if she ever got wise. You ain't mistaken her none, are you?' "'Not me, Euchre. She's a woman. I'd fear her more than any man.' Well, you'll have to kill Bland and Chess Alloway and Rugg, and maybe some others before you can ride off onto the hills with that girl. Why? Can't we plan to be nice to Mrs. Bland and then at some opportune time sneak off without any gunplay? Don't see how on earth, replied Euchre earnestly. 
When Bland's away, he leaves all kinds of spies and scouts watching the valley trails. They've all got rifles. You couldn't get by them. But when the boss is home, there's a difference. Only, of course, him and Chess keep their eyes peeled. They both stay to home pretty much, except when they're playing monte or poker over at Benson's. So I say the best bet is to pick out a good time in the afternoon, drift over careless-like with a couple of hosses, choke Mrs. Bland or knock her on the head, take Jenny with you, and make a rush to get out of the valley. If you had luck, you might pull that stunt without throwing a gun. But I reckon the best figuring would include dodging some lead and leaving at least Bland or Alloway dead behind you. I'm figuring, of course, that when they come home and find out you're visiting Kate frequent, they'll just naturally look for results. Chess don't like you, for no reason except you're swift on the draw, maybe swifter than him. That's the hell of this gunplay business. No one can ever tell who's the swifter of two gunmen till they meet. That fact holds a fascination maybe you'll learn some day. Bland would treat you civil unless there was reason not to, and then I don't believe he'd invite himself to a meeting with you. He'd set chess or rug to put you out of the way. Still, Bland's no coward, and if you came across him at a bad moment, you'd have to be quicker than you was with Bossomer. All right, I'll meet what comes, said Duane quickly. The great point is to have horses ready and pick the right moment then rush the trick through. That's the only chance for success, and you can't do it alone. I'll have to. I wouldn't ask you to help me. Leave you behind. Well, I'll take my chances, replied Euchre gruffly. I'm going to help Jenny. You can gamble your last peso on that. There's only four men in this camp who would shoot me. Bland, in his right-hand pards, and that rabbit-faced Benson. If you happened to put out Bland and Chess, I'd stand a good show with the other two. Anyway, I'm old and tired. What's the difference if I do get plugged? I can risk as much as you, Buck, even if I am afraid of gunplay. You said correct. Horses ready, the right minute, then rush the trick. That much is settled. Now let's figure all the little details. They talked and planned, though in truth it was Euchre who planned, Duane who listened and agreed. While awaiting the return of Bland and his lieutenants, it would be well for Duane to grow friendly with the other outlaws, to sit in a few games of Monty, or show a willingness to spend a little money. The two schemers were to call upon Mrs. Bland every day, Euchre to carry messages of cheer and warning to Jenny, Duane to blind the elder woman at any cost. These preliminaries decided upon, they proceeded to put them into action. No hard task was it to win the friendship of the most of these good-natured outlaws. They were used to men of a better order than theirs coming to the hidden camps, and sooner or later sinking to their lower level. Besides, with them everything was easy come, easy go. That was why life itself went on so carelessly, and usually ended so cheaply. There were men among them, however, that made Duane feel that terrible, inexplicable wrath rise in his breast. He could not bear to be near them. He could not trust himself. He felt that any instant a word, a deed, 
Something might call too deeply to that instinct he could no longer control. Jackrabbit Benson was one of these men. Because of him and other outlaws of his ilk, Duane could scarcely ever forget the reality of things. This was a hidden valley, a robber's den, a rendezvous for murderers, a wild place stained red by deeds of wild men. And because of that there was always a charged atmosphere. The merriest, idlest, most careless moment might in the flash of an eye end in ruthless and tragic action. In an assemblage of desperate characters it could not be otherwise. The terrible thing that Duane sensed was this. The valley was beautiful, sunny, fragrant, a place to dream in. The mountain tops were always blue or gold-rimmed. The yellow river slid slowly and majestically by. The birds sang in the cottonwoods. The horses grazed and pranced. Children played, and women longed for love, freedom, happiness. The outlaws rode in and out, free with money and speech. They lived comfortably in their adobe homes, smoked, gambled, talked, laughed, whiled away the idle hours, and all the time life there was wrong, and the simplest moment might be precipitated by that evil into the most awful of contrasts. Twain felt rather than saw a dark, brooding shadow over the valley. Then, without any solicitation or encouragement from Duane, the bland woman fell passionately in love with him. His conscience was never troubled about the beginning of that affair. She launched herself. It took no great perspicuity on his part to see that. And the thing which evidently held her in check was the newness, the strangeness, and for the moment the all-satisfying fact of his respect for her. Twain exerted himself to please, to amuse, to interest, to fascinate her, and always with deference. That was his strong point, and it had made his part easy so far. He believed he could carry the whole scheme through without involving himself any deeper. He was playing at a game of love, playing with life and deaths. Sometimes he trembled, not that he feared Bland or Alloway or any other man, but at the deeps of life he had come to see into. He was carried out of his old mood. Not once since this daring motive had stirred him had he been haunted by the phantom of Bane beside his bed. Rather had he been haunted by Jenny's sad face, her wistful smile, her eyes. He never was able to speak a word to her. What little communication he had with her was through Euchre, who carried short messages but he caught glimpses of her every time he went to the bland house. She contrived somehow to pass door or window to give him a look when chance afforded, and Duane discovered with surprise that these moments were more thrilling to him than any with Mrs. Bland. Often Duane knew Jenny was sitting just inside the window, and then he felt inspired in his talk, and it was all made for her. So at least she came to know him while as yet she was almost a stranger. Jenny had been instructed by Euchre to listen, to understand that this was Duane's only chance to help keep her mind from constant worry, to gather the import of every word which had a double meaning. Euchre said that the girl had begun to wither under the strain, to burn up with intense hope which had flamed within her. But all the difference Duane could see was a paler face and darker, more wonderful eyes. 
The eyes seemed to be entreating him to hurry, that time was flying, that soon it might be too late. Then there was another meaning in them, a light, a strange fire wholly inexplicable to Duane. It was only a flash gone in an instant, but he remembered it because he had never seen it in any other woman's eyes. And all through those waiting days he knew that Jenny's face, and especially the warm fleeting glance she gave him, was responsible for a subtle and gradual change in him. This change, he fancied, was only that through remembrance of her he got rid of his pale, sickening ghosts. One day a careless Mexican threw a lighted cigarette up into the brush-matting that served as a ceiling for Benson's den, and there was a fire which left little more than the adobe walls standing. The result was that while repairs were being made there was no gambling and drinking. Time hung very heavily on the hands of some two-score outlaws. Days passed by without a brawl, and Bland's Valley saw more successive hours of peace than ever before. Duane, however, found the hours anything but empty. He spent more time at Mrs. Bland's. He walked miles on all the trails leading out of the valley. He had a care for the condition of his two horses. Upon his return from the latest of these tramps, Euchre suggested that they go down to the river to the boat landing. "'Ferry couldn't run ashore this morning,' said Euchre. "'River getting low and sandbars making it hard for horses. There's a greaser freight wagon stuck in the mud. I reckon we might hear news from the freighters. Bland's supposed to be in Mexico.' Nearly all the outlaws in camp were assembled on the river bank, lolling in the shade of the cottonwoods. The heat was oppressive. Not an outlaw offered to help the freighters, who were trying to dig a heavily freighted wagon out of the quicksand. Few outlaws would work for themselves, let alone for the despised Mexicans. Duane and Euchre joined the lazy group and sat down with them. Euchre lighted a black pipe and drawing his hat over his eyes, lay back in comfort after the manner of the majority of the outlaws. But Duane was alert, observing, thoughtful. He never missed anything. It was his belief that any moment an idle word might be of benefit to him. Moreover, these rough men were always interesting. "'Bland's been chased across the river,' said one. "'Nah, he's delivering cattle to that Cuban ship,' replied another. "'Big deal on, hey?' "'Some big. Rug says the boss had an order for fifteen thousand. "'Say, that order'll take a year to fill.' "'Nah, Harden is in cahoots with Bland. Between them they'll fill orders bigger than that.' "'Wonder what Harden was rustling in here for.' Duane could not possibly attend to all the conversation among the outlaws. He endeavored to get the drift of talk nearest to him. "'Kid Fuller's going to cash,' said a sandy-whiskered little outlaw. "'So Jim was telling me. Blood poison, ain't it? That hole wasn't bad, but he took the fever,' rejoined a comrade. "'Dagger said the kid might pull through if he had nursing.' Well, Kate Bland ain't nursing any shot-up boys these days. She hasn't got time. A laugh followed this sally, then came a penetrating silence. 
Some of the outlaws glanced good-naturedly at Duane. They bore him no ill will. Manifestly they were aware of Mrs. Bland's infatuation. "'Pete, pears to me you said that before.' "'Sure. Well, it's happened before.' This remark drew louder laughter and more significant glances at Duane. He did not choose to ignore them any longer. "'Boys, poke all the fun you like at me, but don't mention any lady's name again. My hand is nervous and itchy these days.' He smiled as he spoke, and his speak was drawled, but the good humour in it no wise weakened it. Then his latter remark was significant to a class of men who, from inclination and necessity, practiced at gun-drawing until they wore callous and sore places on their thumbs, and inculcated in the very deeps of their nervous organization, a habit that made even the simplest and most innocent motion of the hand end at or near the hip. There was something remarkable about a gunfighter's hand. It never seemed to be gloved, never to be injured, never out of sight or in an awkward position. There were grizzled outlaws in that group, some of whom had many notches on their gun-handles, and they, with their comrades, accorded Duane silence that carried conviction of the regard in which he was held. Duane could not recall any other instance when he had let fall a familiar speech to these men, and certainly he had never before hinted of his possibilities. He saw instantly that he could not have done better. "'Arful hot, ain't it?' remarked Bill Black presently. Bill could not keep quiet for long. He was a typical Texas desperado, had never been anything else. He was stoop-shouldered and bow-legged from much riding, a wiry little man, all muscle, with a square head, a hard face partly black from scrubby beard and red from sun, and a bright, roving, cruel eye. His shirt was open at the neck, showing a grizzled breast. "'Is there any guy in this here outfit sport enough to go swimming?' he asked. "'My God! "'Gaw, Bill, you ain't a-goin' to wash!' exclaimed a comrade. This raised a laugh in which Black joined, but no one seemed eager to join him in a bath. "'Latest outfit I ever rustled with,' went on Bill discontentedly. "'Nothing to do. Say, if nobody wants to swim, maybe some of you'll gamble?' He produced a dirty pack of cards and waved them at the motionless crowd. "'Bill, you're too good at cards.' replied a lanky outlaw. "'Now, Jasper, you say that powerful sweet, and you look sweet, or I might take it to heart,' replied Black with a sudden change of tone. Here it was again, that up-flashing passion. What Jasper saw fit to reply would mollify the outlaw, or it would not. There was an even balance. "'No offense, Bill.' said Jasper, placidly, without moving. Bill grunted and forgot Jasper, but he seemed restless and dissatisfied. Duane knew him to be an inveterate gambler, and as Benson's place was out of running order, Black was like a fish on dry land. "'Well, if you all are afraid of the cards, what will you bet on?' he asked in disgust. "'Bill, I'll play you a game of mumbly-peg for two bits,' replied one. Black eagerly accepted. Betting to him was a serious matter. The game obsessed him, not the stakes. 
He entered into the mumbly-peg contest with a thoughtful mien and a corded brow. He won. Other comrades tried their luck with him and lost. Finally, when Bill had exhausted their supply of two-bit pieces, or their desire for that particular game, he offered to bet on anything. "'See that turtle-dove there?' he said, pointing. "'I'll bet he'll scare at one stone or he won't. Five pesos he'll fly or he won't fly when someone chucks a stone. Who'll take me up?' That appeared to be more than the gambling spirit of several outlaws could withstand. "'Take that. Easy money,' said one. "'Who's going to chuck the stone?' asked another. "'Anybody,' replied Bill. "'Well, I'll bet I can scare him with one stone,' said the first outlaw. "'We're in on that. Jim to fire the darnick,' chimed in the others. The money was put up, the stone thrown. The turtle-dove took flight, to the great joy of all the outlaws except Bill. "'I'll bet you all he'll come back to that tree inside of five minutes,' he offered imperturbably. Hereupon the outlaws did not show any laziness in their alacrity to cover Bill's money as it lay on the grass. Somebody had a watch, and they all sat down, dividing attention between the timepiece and the tree. The minutes dragged by to the accompaniment of various jocular remarks about a fool and his money. When four and three-quarter minutes had passed, a turtle-dove alighted on the cottonwood. Then ensued an impressive silence while Bill calmly pocketed the fifty dollars. "'But it wasn't the same dove!' exclaimed one outlaw excitedly. "'This one's smaller, dustier, not so purple!' Bill eyed the speaker loftily. "'Well, you'll have to catch the other one to prove that. Sabe, pard? Now I bet any gent here the fifty I won that I can scare that dove with one stone. No one offered to take his wager. Well, then, I bet any of you even money that you can't scare him with one stone. Not proof against this chance, the outlaws made up a purse, and no wise disconcerted by Bill's contemptuous allusions to their banding together. The stone was thrown. The dove did not fly. Thereafter, in regard to that bird, Bill was unable to coax or scorn his comrades into any kind of wager. He tried them with a multiplicity of offers, and in vain. Then he appeared at a loss for some unusual and seductive wager. Presently a little ragged Mexican boy came along the river trail, a particularly starved and poor-looking little fellow. Bill called to him and gave him a handful of silver coins. Speechless, dazed, he went his way, hugging the money. "'I'll bet he drops some before he gets to the road,' declared Bill. "'I'll bet he runs. Hurry, you four-flush gamblers!' Bill failed to interest any of his companions, and forthwith became sullen and silent. Strangely, his good humor departed in spite of the fact that he had won considerable. Duane, watching the disgruntled outlaw, marveled at him, and wondered what was in his mind. These men were more variable than children, as unstable as water, as dangerous as dynamite. "'Bill, I bet you ten you can't spill whatever's in the bucket that peon's packin,' said the outlaw called Jim. Black's head came up with the action of a hawk about to swoop. 
Duane glanced from Black to the road, where he saw a crippled peon carrying a tin bucket toward the river. This peon was a half-witted Indian who lived in a shack and did odd jobs for the Mexicans. Duane had met him often. "'Jim, I take you up,' replied Black. Something, perhaps a harshness in his voice, caused Duane to whirl. He caught a leaping gleam in the outlaw's eye. "'Oh, Bill, that's too fur a shot,' said Jasper, as Black rested an elbow on his knee and sighted over the long, heavy colt. The distance to the peon was about fifty paces, too far for even the most expert shot to hitting moving objects so small as a bucket. Duane, marvelously keen in the alignment of sights, was positive that Black held too high. Another look at the hard face, now tense and dark with blood, confirmed Duane's suspicion that the outlaw was not aiming at the bucket at all. Duane leaped and struck the level gun out of his hand. Another outlaw picked it up. Black fell back astounded. Deprived of his weapon, he did not seem the same man, or else he was cowed by Duane's significant and formidable front. Sullenly he turned away without even asking for his gun. End of chapter.